Last week, Taylor brought the message about Jesus in the temple at age 12, and that was the beginning of our conversations with family. And that conversation was sort of difficult for him and his parents. And then we had today the conversation at uh, the wedding in Cana, and that too has some interesting dynamics within it. And then we have two more Sundays of talking about conversations with family where we observe Jesus and his brothers, assist, brothers and his mother uh, in situations, and we're seeking to learn how family works, how it worked for Jesus, how we respond to situations in the family. Starting on the 29th of January and for five weeks in a row, then we're going to shift and look at dialogues with skeptics. We're going to find five places in the New Testament where people didn't believe in Jesus or had questions or doubts about Jesus. We're going to examine their reservations about Jesus and how Jesus responded to those skeptics. So, Dialogues with Skeptics is going to take us through February and right through Mardi Gras Sunday, right before Mardi Gras. And then the first Sunday in March, we're going to start with a series, Why Jesus? Simply asking, why Jesus? Why not Buddha or Mohammed, Confucius? Why Jesus? And for March and April, we're going to handle this question. We're going to talk about this question. We're going to look in the text at people who asked why Jesus and see how the response is given. So I'm inviting you to bring your family and friends, people with questions about Jesus in particular. We're going to do dialogues with skeptics, and then we're going to do why Jesus. And we'll be in the New Testament and mostly in the Gospels as we look at these questions. Now, the Gospels themselves are not seeking to be objective. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not objective historians. And they confess that right up front. They want you to believe in Jesus. John says in chapter 20, verse 30, that Jesus did many mighty signs that are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in his name. So John is very clear that he wrote his book so that people would believe in Jesus. And he writes them in such a way that it's persuasive. He wants us to pers be persuaded that Jesus is the Christ. And he's in this selection process. All of the writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are selecting from material. There are many other mighty signs that are not written in the book of John. In fact, John says if we wrote everything Jesus did, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So we'd have all kind of books. And we have these four short books. And they are edited by the authors from all the experiences that happen with Jesus. And they select carefully what they're going to include. And John is going to write about seven mighty signs culminating with the resurrection of Jesus. And at least one of those signs uh, has in common with all four gospel writers the feeding of the 5,000. Everybody records that. All four of them do. But John starts out with a mighty sign, 
about Jesus and who he is. This mighty sign draws the disciples into the circle, and they believe in him. And the mighty sign reveals God's glory, all right? And it's found in John chapter 2. I think you're going to find it interesting that this is the first of the mighty signs. And through this, God reveals his glory. It is verse 1 of John chapter 2. As you flip over there, I want you to realize that John is probably the last gospel that is written. Matthew, Mark, and Luke probably preceded John, although we don't know that for sure. There's some discussion about it. But actually, the, the gospel of John We have a fragment of the Gospel of John that we have in hand. In fact, it's about the size of my hand. It's a piece of papyrus that is kept in the Rylands Museum in England. And it's about this large, about the size of my hand. And on one side, it has John 18, 31 through 33, seven lines from those verses. A piece of parchment that we have, a papyrus that we have. And on the back side... It has seven lines from verses 37 and 38 of John 18. Just a scrap, just a piece, just big as my hand. But it indicates that John's gospel was written at the time whenever we got that papyrus. And the papyrus is dated to about 125 A.D. And it was found in Alexandria. All right? Isn't that interesting? This is the earliest text we have actually on papyrus or parchment of the New Testament, and it is John's gospel, written later on, as we understand in the line of the books, and yet they're dated from that very ancient time. The Odyssey, the Iliad, the earliest copies we have are a thousand years ago, a thousand years after they were written. The same is true with Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato, but the Bible was a sacred book. And they kept track of it and they made copies. They were very careful with it. And we date this back to maybe as early as 125 A.D., a scrap of this book. That's just shortly after John died. We believe he lived almost to the end of the first century, almost to 100 A.D. Look what he writes here. Careful selection. On the third day, verse 1, A wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. 
He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best for last. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Isn't it curious? Wine of all things. Wine. His first miracle is changing water to wine. I don't ever drink wine. I've lived my whole life without it. Who needs wine? They needed wine at the wedding. Now, wine was safer to drink than water in those days. The fermentation process killed off microorganisms that were dangerous to the body and made people sick. So it was very important for them back in that time. And Jesus changed the water into wine. It is his first mighty sign. The whole thing happened because Mary apparently felt some responsibility for the condition of the banquet. And she found out that the wine had run out and she went and told him they have no more wine. I guess she felt some responsibility perhaps because she was related to the people getting married or maybe she'd been asked to participate in a special way as some of you do at weddings and receptions, you take a role, you have a responsibility, and you're watching out for things, and what if they run out of food? What do you do? So that's what happened here. They ran out of the wine, and Mary's concerned. And families solve problems. That's what families do. So Mary naturally did not go to some stranger at the wedding. She wanted to go to somebody who was confidential. She didn't want to spread the news that they'd run out of wine. So she went to a family member, like many of us do and oftentimes do, and she went to Jesus to solve the problem. And families do that. Families are designed to solve problems. In fact, all the way through the Christmas season, as we were hearing from the angels, the angels were talking to Joseph and Mary. And a lot of times, Joseph got a message from the angels that was for the whole family. The family has a problem. Herod wants to kill the child. So, Joseph, it's your job, your responsibility. You solve this problem. You get the family out of here. And that was Joseph's job. Joseph took him to Egypt. Family members have roles and responsibilities. And the family's designed to solve problems. Families have problems. Families run into problems. There are things that need to be done. Sometimes even when you have a lot, you run out. Your family is designed to solve problems. Don't consider the problems odd. But look to the family resources when you have a need. That's what Mary did. Your family operates as a unit with diverse gifts, different points of view, different responsibilities, different competencies. And as God uses you in your family, he uses you to solve problems for the family. And when a problem develops, you turn to a family member to get the problem solved. 
So Mary goes to Jesus and says they have no wine. Now, it's bad news. It's not a great thing to happen. I mean, it's not like an earthquake or anything. It's not a disaster, but it's not good that they've run out of wine. Do you find it curious that a preacher, a Baptist preacher, is talking about wine? Is it okay with everybody? I mean, we could have a sermon on wine, but we're talking about the family, right? So, families sometimes disagree. You already experienced that, right? Jesus is 30 years old. He's a single adult. He's still connected to his mother and his brothers in very important ways. They have conversations. They go to the same wedding. They travel in some of the same circles. And family members sometimes disagree. And Mary wants Jesus to solve the problem. So she says to him, they have no more wine. And Jesus says to her, woman, why are you involving me? What have I got to do with this? And he uses the term woman. People look at the term woman and wonder, well, what's he doing here? Is he kind of putting his mother in his place? And some people think he is kind of putting her in her place. But then he does what she says to do. So I don't know if you really put your mom in her place or not, all right? But there's a tension here. There's a little bit of tension. Jesus says, my time's not yet come. And after he says, look, why are you involving me? My time has not yet come. Mary turns, I guess, turns away from Jesus and goes to the servant and says, whatever he says to you, do it. Is that a little pressure? I would say so. So we've got this disagreement, all right? And maybe you have a disagreement in your family. Families disagree. Perspectives disagree. We have different gifts, different passions, a different focus in our life, different competencies. We see situations in different ways. Expect that your family members will sometimes disagree, and sometimes they will disagree with you. Now, we're concerned about the holiness of Jesus. We just shared that Jesus was sinlessly perfect. So when Jesus pushes back on his mother's suggestion, it's not a moral failure. It's not like this is a sin. All right? And your son or daughter disagreeing with you about something is not necessarily a sin, okay? When you have a discussion and there are different points of view, that's not necessarily sinful. It may not be a right and wrong, okay? So that's what I see here. I see in this very interesting interchange that mom and son have a little bit of a disagreement about the timing on this thing. And mom's ready to go. So family members challenge one another, okay? Sometimes they disagree, and sometimes they challenge one another. And Mary's going to challenge Jesus. I don't know if there's something in Mary that says, look, you're 30 years old, you know? Maybe she's got this little feeling it's like a failure to launch. (laughs) Come on. Come on, Jesus, let's go. I don't know. Maybe I don't know what she's feeling right now, but she thinks it's time, and maybe he's hesitating on it. Family members challenge one another. Sometimes they challenge each other in disagreement. We're supposed to challenge one another. 
Your mother wants you to do well. She wants you to do best. She has high expectations for you. She wants your report card to have all A's, right? That's what she wants because she thinks you need to be president one day or at least the CEO of the company. If not running the world, at least running something. And that's her expectation of you. And that's important. That's embedded in her. That's what she wants. So she's going to challenge you at every point. And there's something in you that's drawing you toward this as well. Even little Graham at age four, I'll start cutting up the food on his plate. And he says, I can do it. And he pushes my hands away. I think it's now his favorite sentence. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. He makes a mess when he does it. But he wants to do it himself. And parents start saying to children, you can do that. You can do it. We're transferring independence to them. We want them to have a developing confidence that they can do it. And so the family members challenge one another. And when your parent challenges you or a sibling challenges you and they throw it out there, they're drawing you toward a place where you hadn't been, that's okay. That's what family do. The family's designed to help us be all we can be. If it works right, it's a problem-solving unit that draws us toward the best we can be. The reason that is, is because the most intimate relationships you have are with your family members, as well as some dear friends maybe that are yours. But when you develop those dear friendships and those family relationships, they are very significant in your life to shape you in ways that other relationships can't because these relationships matter more than anything. He loves his mother, Jesus does. He doesn't want to offend her. This relationship is important to him. And he proves that all the way to the cross where he takes care of his mother as he is dying. Family members take care of one another and challenge each other and disagree. Your family's not weird if these things are happening in the dynamics between you and your brothers or sisters or parents. That's not weird. That's normal. That's how God grows us up. And here's the thing. It is in this dynamic of the wedding. So many strange things happen at weddings. Most preachers could make a long list of things that happen at weddings. It is a very formal affair, and everything's supposed to be just so, and then things just never happen quite so. I, I dropped my ring one time when they gave it to me. The best man gave me the ring, and I dropped it, and it hit a wooden floor. And instead of just staying there, it rolled until it rolled back under the curtain that separated the platform from the choir. And actually, the bridegroom had to get down on his hands and knees and get that ring. He did. He found it groping around back there in the choir loft. So many strange things happen at weddings and so many strange things happen in the families and sometimes the tension, we wonder if it's healthy, but God is at work in that. And here's what God does. Here's what God does. You've got this tension between the mother and the grown son. You've got this discussion going on. Jesus finally demonstrates a humility that is amazing. And what Jesus does is he conforms to the wishes of his mother. He says, my time has not yet come, and then he does the miracle that introduces him to the disciples as the Messiah and the promised one. And God reveals his glory right here at this wedding. And that's the way mother wanted it. And Jesus demonstrates this humility. 
And his mother demonstrates this determination, this backbone that she has. And together, God uses both the tensions, the disagreements, and the interesting dynamic of it to reveal his glory. Jesus, in an amazing miracle, changes the water into wine, and he reveals the glory of God. Can God reveal his glory in the messy family situation in which you are involved? Could God reveal his glory in your relationship with your mother that's been troubled or your father that maybe has been non-existent, or that brother you haven't spoken with in three years? Can God reveal his glory in these family situations and dynamics that seem so difficult? Yes, he can. And he does. And he does so here. We just sang, Lord, Lord, show us your glory, God. Show us your glory. God's going to show his glory to you in your family this year. Believe it. Claim it. Say it. Trust that it will happen. God, you're going to show us your glory in our family this year. You keep your eyes open in 2017 and you will see the activity of God in your family. And you will know God better for having lived through this year in tight relationship with the people you're supposed to love. And if you will pray that prayer, God, show us your glory in our family this year. God may, in fact, use you to be the catalyst for a dynamic and wonderful experience that your family has in the coming months. That you are the one through whom God will work to reveal his glory, maybe to people who are out of sorts and maybe in conflict with one another, and yet God will use you. Would you make that a prayer? God, show us your glory. In my marriage, show us your glory. In our home, show us your glory. Through our children and grandchildren, God, show us your glory. You know, I was, I was thinking about Graham's accident, and somebody told me at the uh, service here recently, they said, I think about Graham's miracle every day. And I thank God that he's still alive. He's my four-year-old who nearly died three years ago. And I think, yeah, that was an event, wasn't it? It was an event that happened to me when I was on up in age. And God revealed his glory through a terrible and traumatic incident in our family. And God just let his glory shine up and down the halls of Auctioner Hospital. And in that ICU, I treasure the picture of those ICU nurses holding little Graham. Couldn't find a heartbeat for 30 minutes in ICU for 11 days. The doctor said, prepare for him to die. And he not only survived, but he has thrived. You say, what, what happened there? God showed his glory in the midst of our family crisis. And God can do that and does so over and over again. Will you pray this year? We pray, God, in our family, show us your glory. Now, I want to note one other thing as we look at this text about Jesus' family, okay? The family solves problems. The family has disagreement. The family challenges one another, but somehow the family displays the glory of God. 
And then the family leaves that wedding where they had that little bit of tense exchange. And the scripture says deliberately that Jesus and his mother and his brothers went together to Capernaum for a few days. They all traveled down the road together and they stayed together. And that's, that's something I would say to you. Families stay together. See, a, a family lives in a covenant. Not only is there the spoken covenant between the husband and wife till death do us part. Will you promise to love, honor, and keep until death do us part? There is that covenant. But there also is this implied covenant between parents and children and children and parents and, and brothers and sisters. There's this implied covenant that I got your back because we are family and we stay together. And even when we have difficulties, we stay together. And when it's hard, we stay together. And we have exchanges, we stay together. See, that's not something that's optional for me just to take up out of this family. And so that's one thing I would say to you, okay? Renew your commitment to be father and son, brother and sister, husband and wife. The suitable need of the hour, whatever it is, whatever shows up at the wedding or somewhere else, when it arises, for that moment I will be the spouse, the parent, the child that God intends for me to be and thus bring him glory. And it changes. It's a moving target. It's dynamic as you age, as you move through the different eras of life. But to be the person in your family, God intends for you to be and has called you to be as you trust him, as you walk with him, he reveals his glory. Bow with me, please. Heavenly Father, we're praying for our families now, God. Holy Spirit, we, we send this message to you. We want our families to reveal your glory this year. We want to be able to see it in our homes, in our marriages, with our children. Just as you revealed your glory in this situation with Jesus and his mother and here at this wedding, God, reveal your glory. Use our family to solve problems. Lord, help us to challenge one another, even when we disagree. God, give us the determination and commitment to keep our covenants one with another and so reveal your glory. God, let your Holy Spirit descend upon our families that every room in our house may be a reminder of your presence and every conflict or trouble or situation that arises, we know it's an opportunity for you to reveal your glory. God, I pray for families that are hurting that you'll bring their, those families your comfort. I pray for those that are troubled, that you will bring healing to those families. I pray for husbands and wives who've grown distant and cold, that God, this year will be a year when they deliberately turn to face one another and hold on to each other and renew the vows to love, honor, and keep. I pray for parents who are having trouble with their children and adult children who are having trouble with their parents going both ways, God. And I pray that this will be a year when we see your glory revealed through the difficult circumstances of life. And God, that you will find us faithful unto you in loving one another deeply with our whole heart. And so use us. 
that your power may go forth and your word may be known in our families and our world that needs you. In Jesus' name.